Let's uh, open with a word of prayer as we get started today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have revealed so much about yourself to us that we can study and learn and grow in and appreciate. Uh, We thank you for you being the perfect Father as we celebrate Father's Day here on earth. Today, Lord, we acknowledge you are the perfect Father, and Lord, may we all strive uh, to be like you, no matter who we are, Uh, and we thank you for the provisions you have made for us as the loving Father. Help us now as we uh, reflect on what we've been studying and move the conversation forward with more of your attributes. We pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds as we look at your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So this is actually our third week where we're looking at theology proper. Uh, We will look at a couple more attributes today. I've combined two of them there on the second point. So the first one will be the first of three omnis that we will look at when we talk about God. Uh, God is omnipresent. We'll look at that today. And then I thought these two were a pretty good combination to be combined. God is spirit and God is invisible. So let's uh, take a look back at last week to see what we talked about, see what we can recall. And what two attributes of God did we study last week? We'll start with that question. (laughs) Grant. God is knowable, yes. We can know about our God. That is one of them, good. Unchangeable, thank you, yes. God is unchangeable or immutable. Very good. Uh, Next question, what are the two forms of special revelation God has provided to help us know him? And before we answer that, you see I did a little fancy font on the word special there. That's a reminder to me to say, sometimes I feel like that word special doesn't do enough justice for what we're talking about here. Uh, sometimes my wife will say to me, you're special. Um, so I, I want to make sure we're very clear on what this special means. This is, this is above and beyond, all right? This is remarkable. Think of it more like supernatural. Maybe that would be a better word uh, for the use of the word special revelation here. Uh, but of course, he's given us his word, and what is really the other main form of special revelation he has given us? Good try, good try. The Old Testament, I think that's true, but kind of his word, right? What was the supernatural showing of God? Just nature or the world. Okay, or is that general? Eric? Okay. Okay. All right. So a little bit, yeah, I think we've talked about some very unique situations in the Bible, right, where God came down. I think Eric's citing what, what God did in the life of Paul. Grant? Uh, things that are immutable, not Okay. Things that are not 
Okay, communicable versus incommunicable. So that would be uh, things he can pass along to us, those attributes he passed along to us versus uh, those he keeps to himself. Gordy? His son. His son. That is the other form of special revelation. God has helped us to know him more with through Jesus Christ. So those are the two main categories of special revelation. And some of you shared uh, some that we would probably classify as general revelation so that everybody can at least understand there is a God that's out there. Okay, how about this question? What New Testament book commences with a brief summary of how God has made himself knowable over time? We looked at this last week. Anybody remember what book starts off with that? Close, close. I'll give you a hint. The author is kind of unknown. Hebrews, right. So the book of Hebrews where he says, God in various times and in many ways previously has by the prophets, but in these last days he has by his son. So there's that transition of how God has revealed himself over time. Okay, this is, a, this is maybe, maybe a tough one. According to Grudem, in what four aspects is God unchangeable? We highlighted four different ways that Grudem pointed out God doesn't change in these different aspects. Anybody remember those four or any of those four? Dan? Okay, attributes. Yes, that's one of them. Being. Yes, that's another. A couple more that start with the same letter, I think. Purpose and promises. Good. Attributes being his purposes and his promises. All right, good. So just a quick review of what we went over last week. So let's march forward into this week. God is omnipresent. I suppose we can just stop and say everywhere present, right? That would be a brief summary of it, but maybe we could define it like this as well. God is everywhere present so that there is nowhere in existence where God is not present. So that place doesn't exist. And if you would, with me, first of all, we'll answer this question before we turn in our Bibles, but is this attribute of God communicable, that is, do we share it, or is it incommunicable? <laughs> incommunicable, all right. Maybe the easiest question of, of the, the series. What's that? Oh, yes. Nick says, Nick says mothers appear to be omnipresent to their children, so I, I, that's a good point. So maybe not as easy as I thought it was. Let's go to Psalm 139, and maybe this is one of the, the bedrock texts for us to go to when we talk about God's omnipresence. Uh, the Psalm of David here, probably familiar to many of us, uh, but let's take a look at how he describes God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 139. And really, it's an interesting, we come to this chapter for many things. Uh, the first six verses, you might say, might speak to another one of God's omnis, his omniscience. Okay, But we're going to focus on verses 7 through 12 today. And then we typically go to verses 13 and 14 when we talk about how God is so intricately involved in life. These are two very strong pro-life verses, verses 13 and 14. But let's take a look at this uh, section, verses 7 through 12, Psalm 139. 
David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So you see here David is looking up, he's looking down, he's even talking about darkness not being able to distract or disrupt God's ability to be everywhere, see everything here in Psalm 139. A couple of other uh, proof texts here. Proverbs 15, verse 3, talks about God's presence in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sees it all. Jeremiah 23, 24, rhetorically speaking, the Lord says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. So these are some some key texts. And as I said last week, I just so appreciate these Old Testament passages that give us really a good view at these attributes of God. Okay, so one question that comes up when we talk about God's omnipresence uh, that I'd like to maybe discuss a little bit today, get your take on this. How do we handle the question of God's omnipresence when it comes to hell? So we picture hell as this place of eternal judgment, damnation. Uh, You you don't want to be there. This is where God is going to pour out his wrath for eternity. So the question is, is God there? If we say he's omnipresent, is he even in hell? Well, let's take a look at this verse in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I want you to think about this and see how you, you handle this in your mind. Uh, so Paul is writing here, and he's talking about the judgment of God that is to come. And he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay, so does this limit God's omnipresence, or is this still saying God is present even in hell? Something to think about, because I I believe most of us would say God and sin do not mix. He is holy. That's one of his attributes. Sin is the opposite of that. So since hell has been created by God and appointed by God to be in the destination of the lost who have rejected him, I will assert he will be present there, namely to receive glory through pouring out his wrath upon sin. Okay, so anybody want to say that's fair or is that unfair for me to assert that? That God, in a sense, will have a presence even in hell. How do we want to handle that, Grant? Okay, so Grant shared, he thinks this is a 
right assertion, and he thinks that people in hell will be aware of who God is, so certainly that would testify to God's presence there. Okay, good. Uh, Eric? Okay, so Eric stated that it's good that in hell God will be there because he's going to keep the boundaries in place of what hell will be all about. And can I assume the judgment, perpetual judgment, God is there uh, making sure that continues, okay? Uh, Yes, Michael. Okay, so Michael shared God will sustain the punishment that's going on in hell, but he is separate from the punishment. He, he's, he's involved in overseeing it, but he's not the one partaking in the punishment. Right, okay, yes? Okay, so David, David's acknowledging we get down into the grave, the lowest parts, there you are, another... Another enforcement of maybe what the assertion was here, right? Oh, good. Okay. This side is all on the same, same wavelength today. Good. All right. Grant? Okay, so Grant shared Christ has experience. He's gone. We're not 100% sure about what happened when he died and what he did in terms of taking the punishment for us. He descended, we believe, into the lower part. So there's been an experiential part of Christ's experience on our behalf. And so in that sense, God has already kind of experienced it to some degree. So, all right, thank you. So this is good. One of the things as I was looking into this, uh, going back to that passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, it seems like the Greek word for presence is best translated face. So it might be easy for us as we look at the passage in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 to say, all right, here's God's presence, but when you're going through eternal damnation, punishment, you're going to be away from that. But I believe the idea more is, Here's God's face. You're away from that 
face of God versus his entire being because some aspect of God in his presence uh, will be there in hell. So next thing I want to share with you, and that leads right into this, this idea, I can't point you to a verse where this is laid out in the Bible, but as I look at the Bible and I, I walk through this idea of God's omnipresence this week, it kind of struck me. Can we say there are three levels of God's presence? And again, this, this is opportunity for, for good dialogue here because I, I want to see what you think about this. Feel free to shoot it down. Feel free to say, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but here's, here's what I, I'm wondering. First of all, can God have a distant presence? That is, and this is so hard because, you know, God fills everything. He's a sea spirit. It's hard to almost put into measurement, right, how we can think about his presence. But there's a distant presence where he's, he's there in some regard, but almost in opposition, as we would see carried out in hell. There's a general presence, and that's when we say, I think maybe this is the first idea that comes to mind with omnipresence. He is present, though it's not evidently clear. And maybe a third level of his presence is this idea of manifest presence, where his presence is clear and unmistakable. There is no doubt that God is near. Okay? So... As you think about these three levels, and again, I can't say go to the book of Job chapter 12 and verse 2 and see that the three levels are spelled out, but as you look through the Bible, you get, I think you can see this. So I'm going to ask you to, to comment on any one of those and maybe even share where you see this playing out in the Bible in some way, shape, or form, or a passage that might even speak to these three levels. So, first of all, let's, let's look at this idea of the distant presence. Besides what we just looked at in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Nick? When the Israelites are going through the 40 years in the wilderness, they're going through that cycle of accepting God, walking away from him. Like he's, when they walk away from him, he's still there, but he can't be in the presence of sin, so he's distant from him. Okay. Yeah. Nick said, think about the children of Israel in the 40 years, and even, I suppose you could even carry that on throughout many years. They go through this cycle of sin, repentance, sin, and that creates a barrier uh, with God. Eric? Okay.
Okay. Okay, so Eric first stated that uh, he thinks some of what the children of Israel went through, a lot of that was experiencing the manifest presence of the Lord, namely through the pillars. God represented himself during the day and then at night. And then he also mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, which is one that was clear in my mind. And then he also talked about how Cain, being driven away from, from the Lord, he experienced what you might call a distant presence. God God was around, certainly, but he did not have that closeness with Cain. I even thought about Cain's parents, too. They had that wonderful bond with God in the Garden of Eden. Sin came, and all of a sudden you see, you see this distance, right? Michael? Right. So Michael shared, as time goes on, there's going to be more of a separation or a demarcation of those who are believers. They will eventually be very close to the Lord in eternity, face to face, whereas those who are not believers face a different fate and a further separation from the Lord. Okay, Flora? That's good. Flora noted in the Old Testament with Saul, we're not sure of his salvation. There is actually a point in Scripture where it says the Spirit of the Lord has left him, and I suppose that's a sep- little bit of a separate discussion talking about how the, one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was the Lord used that Holy Spirit as an anointing to do certain things. So was that a matter of um, the Holy Spirit's anointing almost as the king of Israel leaving Saul? Yeah, I agree. Once you're saved, you're saved. But it it is a little unclear in the case of Saul. I I would agree with that. Okay, general presence. uh, Again, this is what we all would agree to, I think, with omnipresence. Um, And what about this idea of manifest presence, where we've already heard from Eric, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, and then God's presence in the clouds and fire, uh, with, with the children of Israel. Any, any other example of God's manifest presence? How about, uh, yes, Ryan.
Okay. Uh, Ryan cited the story of Job, how we know the trials he went through and all the questions he started asking, and then he got to experience God up close and, and personal. So that's that's a good example. Uh, Grant? Okay, so you, you would put that in the manifest. I think that's an example of that. Okay, so. Okay, so Grant, Grant's wondering if the manifest presence can count for some of those anointings in the Old Testament for leadership. And then uh, the first thing Grant said is wondering about when we go through trials, can, can we necessarily say that is not the manifest presence of the Lord walking us through those trials? So. Uh, Wayne and then Ben. Wayne? You have the example of Daniel and the three Hebrew children when they went through the fiery furnace. Uh, they acknowledged that God was with them and that God was a manifest presence. And whether he would save them or not was not their choice. It was God's choice, but they were content with that. Hmm. And so they were going through trials, but God very definitely was manifest in their life. Hmm. Yeah, good example. So Wayne said the story of uh, the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. God's presence was clear and obvious in that situation. Ben? Ben is speculating that we, we look and we look at the life of Saul and we say we didn't see a lot of good fruit. We will know believers by their fruit. And so, Ben, would it be safe to say that you're thinking Saul was not saved? Right. Yeah, visited by evil spirit. Well, was he visited by Samuel? Was Samuel an evil spirit? All right. <laughs> Not for today's discussion. Maybe someday. (laughs) The process. Yes. Yes. Yeah, not good. All right. (laughs) Good. All right. Let's, uh, let's, anyway, something to think about. Feel free to, uh, if you decide my idea of three levels of God's presence is way off base, feel free to let me know and I'll I'll reconsider. Uh, Let's move on to our next attribute for today, though. Uh, God is spirit and invisible, which ties along well with God is omnipresent. And we can define it this way. God is not matter, nor is he 
typically visible to the eye. Therefore, he is not constrained by any limitations intrinsic to matter. Isn't it interesting as you think, or we're, we're so focused on the things we can see in this world, right? I mean, that's just how we're built. Uh, we, we, we trust things we can see very easily. But everything we see has limitations. It, it can be destroyed, right? That is not the case with God. God is not confined to matter. So he is above all this idea we've mentioned before of transcendence. Uh, Eric, you're waving at me. Oh. Matter or energy. Oh. Okay. Eric is saying not matter or energy. So that's that's interesting. Matter or energy. And we don't. We don't. He. 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 he can, of course, produce it, but he's not energy. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more, Eric? Well, our physical universe is matter and energy. And so it's, it's important to be able to take that and understand that it's Okay. There are other things that are just pure energy that we can't see. So it's uh, it's important to add that word so that we we don't confuse God with some of the types of energy in our created universe that we can't see. Okay. He's not that either. He's completely distinct and separate from that as well. Okay. So Eric is saying since our universe is made up of matter and energy, God should not be considered either of those categories, matter or energy. He is distinct, creator of all of that, but uh, yet distinct from those pieces. So the question next is, are these attributes, spirit and invisible of God, communicable or incommunicable? Do we share these, or are they gods and gods alone? We'll take the easy one first. Invisible would be... Thank you. Incommunicable. I see everybody in this room, so sorry, you're not invisible. Uh, and the next one is spirit. Now, this one's a little bit more interesting, isn't it? Michael? Okay, so Michael shared that when we die, we will leave these bodies of ours behind, but our spirit proceeds on. Right, temporarily. And then he made the case about Jesus as one of the members of the Trinity having a body, now a glorified body, but he was on the earth for a time. Uh, But we as humans, we do have this aspect of a spirit. But to say we are, at our very core, a spirit, I would say would be false, but we do have a spirit as part of our being that will be perpetuating into eternity. Okay, good distinction there. Our spirit was created, whereas God's spirit uncreated, the eternal existent one. Thank you.
Okay, how about some scriptural proof for these ideas about God being spirit and invisible? Uh, maybe the strong go-to text for most people is in John 4.24. Here Jesus is talking to the woman from Samaria. There's a little bit of a, a concern on her part, like, well, I, I don't know if I fit in. These folks worship here in Jerusalem, and these folks over here worship here. And then Christ says, let's talk about this. There's going to come a time when it doesn't really matter where you're going to worship, but here's what God wants. And then he defines God by saying God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is where we go to get this idea of God's existence as spirit. In Colossians 1.15, going to this idea of being an invisible God, Paul writing, and interestingly enough, talking about the preeminence of Christ here in Colossians 1, He says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the God that we cannot see. Now, notice back in my definition at the top, though, I had to put in the word typically because did he ever make himself visible at times? Yes, Yes, he did. So there have been times in history being God do whatever he wants. He has made himself visible. But in the understanding, his essence as spirit, he is invisible. This is also echoed in 1 Timothy 1. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it was a week or two, I think I talked about, uh, sometimes you read through what Paul writes, and he's writing to Timothy, of course, here. But he'll be thinking about how God has worked in his life, and it's like he's just got to stop and have this little time of glory and praise in his writings. And look what he says here. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because remember, in the verses leading up to that, he just got done talking about how he is the chief of sinners. And he's remembering what Christ has done. And he's honoring God because of that, saving Paul. So what about some of those times, if your mind is thinking about this idea of of, um, God as a spirit, what about some of those times in the Bible where God is said to have physical features? Oh, no. Now what do we do? Gordy? I just wanted to go back to the idea of invisible. Okay. When Elisha, when Elisha's servant thought it was noon, and Elisha prayed to God, please open his eyes that he may see your forces, mm. God opened his eyes. God didn't paint the spiritual beings to make them visible. God opened the spiritually, of the spiritual blind eyes. Yeah, so Gertie's pointing out that this idea of invisible may really focus in on our ability to see things, and yet, of course, there is a spiritual realm we don't know too much about where these things are more evident, I think it's safe to say. And yeah, that is such an interesting story from from the time of Elisha. Michael? Hands 
Okay, so Michael is, is answering the question up, up here we have right now that there are times in the Bible where God is said to have eyes or hands, these different features, and he's saying it's done to help us understand. He doesn't have these physical features per se, and you're, you're exactly on the right track here. So what we call this is anthropomorphism, which is taking human characteristics and attributing them to divine beings. This was done a little bit in mythology as well, which you know I, I would call um, fake fake news. But um, I, when we're talking about God of the universe here, this is exactly what happens because. If we look at Isaiah 66, 1, here's another example. Uh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? There isn't a, a physical throne, even though it might be easy for us to see that as we read that, and we certainly would attribute that to God, but what is it helping us see? It's helping us see that there is this regal aspect of God where he is deserving of worship as we would think, how do we honor kings in, in this world that we live in? And this is a whole new level. Okay, so Second um, Chronicles 16.9, this is one of the examples I think Michael is citing. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Number 625, this is one of those verses that we like to hear. The Lord make his face shine upon you, it says. So, so we've seen a throne, we've seen eyes, we've seen face. Again, God doesn't, as spirit, doesn't have these attributes. Okay? Um, so why? Well, Michael already hit on it, and we're running out of time, so I'll just work, work the way through here. <laughs> we, we saw this phrase last week. I'll throw up the Latin phrase you may recall uh, from Calvin. Uh, which is finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot grasp the infinite. So what does God do? He gives us language that we can understand. All right? He, he is so far above and beyond us. Our, remember we talked about that eight-ounce cup of water? Uh, this is what we can handle. And, and God's knowledge, uh, trying to grasp him, is like trying to think about all the oceans combined plus unlimited oceans. It's just not doable for us in the current place we find ourselves in these human bodies and minds we have. The hope is in eternity we will get a better grasp. Our, our knowledge will increase, uh, but that time is yet to come. Okay, so as we close out today, uh, any reflections as you think about God uh, being omnipresent, God as spirit, God as invisible? Um, I don't know, maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, uh, God is omnipresent, so... That helps me behave the way I should behave. Um, some people feel like because God is God and he's, he's everywhere, he may not necessarily key in on them. I, I don't feel that way at all. I feel like God is always watching me. Um, and so that's my, I don't have a distant view of God at all. But any, any final thoughts on his omnipresence or his spirit invisible attributes? John says Adam and Eve really had the greatest positions two humans could ever have because they were in such close fellowship with God, which, which they wasted away. Christine?
Amen. So even when we are fatherless on this earth, um, through different circumstances, God is there for us. And he, he has a heart for those who are in need. And we see that really play out in the life of Christ when Christ is on the earth as well, reaching out to those in need. Thank you, Christine. Any other thoughts, comments? Yes, Dan? So Dan, Dan shared um, that it's, it's really neat thinking about these attributes of God, especially as we get into the, some of these omnis and, and the vastness of God that we can share with, with kids as their, their minds start expanding and start grasping these things. And uh, I'll, I'll just kind of echo what Christine shared, uh, since I don't think I repeated it, but she shared, um, she, I don't know, Christine, did you give an age? Ten, okay, so... Uh, fatherless, she was fatherless after 10, and so she really appreciated God, God's presence, uh, being that perfect father for her. Well, we're going to close now, but as we do, I thought it would be really great if Ben would come up and lead us in this great hymn that talks about some of these attributes um, that we've been talking about. You might even remember one of them from last week there in the last part of the next verse, but I thought it would be great if we could sing praise to our Lord and, and honor him for who he is and what he is about.